Today we encounter the great mind of Socrates through author Ron Gross and a really extraordinary book called Socrates Way, Seven Master Keys to Using Your Mind to the Utmost, published by Tarcher Putnam. This is a, a, a thought-provoking book in every sense of the word, and I cannot remember the last time I, I read a book that, that I found so profoundly thought-provoking. And um, we're going to be exploring with Ron Gross the figure of Socrates and his significance uh, over 2,000 years after he lived and uh, the influence of some of his ideas and these seven master keys, which... Uh, Ron Gross believes should be uh, a part of everyone's life. I should mention that Ron Gross chairs the uh, University uh, Seminar on Asia at Columbia University and is responsible for several different books, which uh, appropriately is called The Lawn Learn. Uh, Ron, welcome to the morning show. The Plebby with Greg. Tell us a bit about your uh, person character with figures of critics. Uh, as you've been with him, uh, been a strong time. It's like, and he has the great old to me, how I wanted to use him on the host and meet his Michaels and my wife more and my relationships. It started for me real early at the age of nine. I noticed one day that my father used to take a big book down from a top shelf of the uh, bookshelf in our living room each day, and he'd tear out three or four pages of this very impressive-looking book, fold them neatly into threes, uh, put them in his breast pocket, and leave for work. And then when he'd come back at night, he'd take the papers out of his pocket, flatten them out, and put them back in the book. And when I finally had the chance to ask him what this was all about, he explained to me that in his work and in his life, he did not have the opportunity to meet the most brilliant, the wittiest, uh, the most enjoyable, the wisest people of our time, but that he could spend an hour with those people each day on his way to and from work on the subway, and that's exactly what he did, and it changed his life, and by passing it along to me, it changed mine, because a couple of years after that, he took me to my first Broadway show, and it was a show called uh, Barefoot in Athens, and it was about Socrates, and I saw my hero tramping around the, the, ag the agora in, in ancient Athens, that great marketplace at the foot of the Acropolis, and I was hooked. I didn't wear shoes for a week. <laughs> and ever since then, he's been my hero, and he has been become, as he was to his companions in 5th century Athens, uh, a beloved friend, a wise counselor, uh, a stern mentor, uh, and one who has uh, get, gotten me to perform things that I never thought I'd be able to do. And that's his great gift to us, I think, that he can... He can do that for anyone, I believe. Hmm. Uh, that was always his contention, and it's proven true in my life. We should say that not only have you written very effectively about Socrates, uh, you also uh, enjoy taking to the streets of New York City, um, dressed as Socrates, talking like Socrates, and encountering strangers and engaging them in, uh, in interesting dialogue, question and answer, much the way we believe Socrates uh, engaged the public of Athens. Tell us a little bit about how you began doing that and, and what you see as, as, as the benefit of, of celebrating Socrates in this uh, uh, unconventional way. Sure, Greg. Well, some people sometimes say, are you channeling Socrates? And that's not <laughs> it at all. <laughs> what I'm really doing is, is doing what I hope to help readers of the book do, and that is to bring out the Socrates in me, uh, because the Socratic spirit is there in all of us. It's that spirit that we had as kids when we weren't afraid to ask brash questions, where we were learning all the time, uh, when we uh, uh, were, were constantly acquiring new skills and capabilities. And uh, that's what I find I can do when I don the, the toga uh, and the headband and take my great staff and come loping out of the 42nd Street and Broadway subway station, as I did three days ago in Manhattan, and start talking with people about topics like what is happiness or what makes a city great. And people are receptive to that, by and large. 
Oh, yes. Uh, they At first, of course, it gets a lot of attention, and uh, people want to ask me some funny questions. Uh, but pretty soon, they realize that this is something that they really enjoy and benefit from. And we had a 45-minute conversation at the corner of 42nd Street and Broadway, and at the end of it, uh, one of the people who happened to be passing by and got lured in uh, was uh, Bert Bauman, the past president of the New York State Trial Lawyers Association. And <laughs> he said at the end of this conversation, Socrates, if you had been on the Enron board, you might have been able to save the soul of that company. So <laughs> what Socrates has to say and what he wants us to think about uh, are very, very relevant to our time. He really speaks to our situation in, in, in every way, uh, particularly in this holiday season when we're being implored to buy, 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 buy. Uh, he has a very powerful message about what we really need in the way of gifts. Uh, and he also has things to say to us about what we're encountering with our war on terrorism, believe it or not. Hmm. He lived through the same thing. So perhaps we can talk about those kinds of relevance that Socrates has to our lives today. I, I want to ask you uh, for just a, a very brief sense of how we know what we know about Socrates. What comes down to us 2,500 years later? I mean, in terms of uh, the scope of, of his own writings or those... Uh, around him that wrote about Socrates and what he believed. Um, What exactly is the tangible legacy from which we can draw these life lessons? That's a very revealing question, Greg, because it actually is a testament to Socrates' gift for friendship. Socrates never wrote anything. There's not a line, not a single sentence in any library in the world that was written and signed by Socrates. And that's because he believed that we really only think our best thoughts and what he called philosophy was really only done when you sat down with people, looked them in the eye, heard their voice, uh, an- listened to them, answered to them, had real communion with them. And so he never wrote anything. Uh, that, then therefore, we would know nothing about him if it weren't that his friends so revered and enjoyed and valued their time with him that they, Plato and Xenophon and a couple of others, spent the better part of their lives, both while Socrates was still alive and after his death, because they were much younger, in recording uh, for us the conversation so that we can actually walk the streets of Athens with Socrates uh, rather than reading what he thinks we should think. We can walk the streets of Athens with him, and that's what we do in the book, and hear him talking to his friends, go to parties with him, go to the theater with him, uh, go to business places with him, and see exactly what he said to people and what impact that had on people. And so the, the, the works from which we know about Socrates are a gift to, to uh, his gift for friendship. They're, they're a testament to his gift for friendship. We wouldn't know a thing about him if it wasn't that he made such great friends that they were willing to take part of their lives to share him with us. Hmm. We're talking with Ron Gross, who is the author of Socrates' Way, Seven Master Keys to Using Your Mind to the Utmost. Socrates in his lifetime was, of course, a figure of some controversy. Can you give us just a brief sense of, of why that was or what, it was, what was so provocative about his ideas that, uh, that made him so, uh, so feared by some? Of course, and he was indeed. He was dubbed the gadfly, and what they meant by that, his friends and neighbors, was that his constant questioning of their of the way they were living their lives and the way the state was being run reminded them of those insects that bite and bite the butts of farm animals in the summer and can drive an animal crazy if the animal can't swat them away with its tail 
And Socrates' questions were seen as like the bites of the gadfly, that he was constantly uh, accosting people with these questions. And, of course, he'd been doing that to some of the biggest horses' asses in Athens for decades. And then what happened was that Athens, uh, like, uh, like our, his beloved city, Athens, like our country, uh, it got involved with a war with terrorists, the Spartans. And the city was uh, uh, demolished by terrorism. Uh, the citizens began to be suspicious of each other. They found that they wanted to give up some of their treasured freedoms uh, in the name of security, and they began looking around for scapegoats. And the Socrates had begun to get on their nerves because even under this kind of pressure, he insisted on being a critical thinker, on thinking for himself, on challenging authority when necessary, on insisting that citizens like himself should... Uh, know what was going on and have the right and the duty to uh, help formulate the right policies. Uh, so some of the citizens brought him up on charges, uh, atheism, uh, corrupting the minds of the young with new ideas, uh, and put him on trial for his life at the age of 70. And uh, Socrates was uh, condemned by that court uh, and could have easily escaped, but he decided that it was the best thing for him to do was to actually accept the verdict and take the hemlock. And in doing that, he launched our great tradition of civil disobedience so that some of our uh, heroes of our day, like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, uh, invoked Socrates from their jail cells when they followed in the path that he laid out of, of contesting an unjust law by accepting the penalty of the state. I want to probe into the seven master keys which you... Uh say, in, in the title of your book, are, are the keys to using your mind to the utmost. Wonderful. First of all, uh, exactly where did these seven come from? I mean, these are not a master list of Socrates. Have you yourself drawn out what you find to be seven predominant uh, yes, themes or principles? Exactly, but they are right there. They are the principles that uh, drove Socrates in his lifelong quest for wisdom and right action. Uh, in fact, each chapter of the book starts with bringing you right into the presence of Socrates and walking around with him while he exemplifies whichever of the seven principles we're talking about, know thyself, ask great questions, uh, grow with your friends, challenge authority. We see him doing that, stand next to him as he's doing it, and see exactly how he did it with his friends and neighbors in 5th century Athens. Then in each chapter I show how someone in our time has done exactly the same thing using Socrates' methods and showing how his methods are at just as applicable today as they were in his time. Hmm. Even, if, even if not given credit at the time. Precisely. And then the rest of the chapter, of each chapter, is, are dozens of exercises by which you can easily and enjoyably master one of these techniques for yourself so that you can begin to bring forth that Socratic spirit in you. I have to say that one of the things that I found most striking about this list and about the principles was that I could imagine all kinds of marvelous applications to people of all ages. I could imagine somebody who is 75 years old, and I could imagine someone 15 years old, and anybody in between uh, finding food for thought oh, in, Greg, in these I'm principles. Oh, I'm so glad that uh, that, that uh, occurred to you, that uh, that's certainly what what I hope would be the case, because these were indeed principles which Socrates applied throughout his life, and I truly believe that they are equally applicable to uh, the youngest child and to uh, a person of advanced years who wants to reinvigorate their life. I mean, I think, for instance, uh, a principle like think for yourself. Uh, I mean, 
what what more important lesson is there for a ten year old in this world in which uh, we live, <laughs> full of temptations and, <laughs> and and wrong paths? Um, I mean, that's 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 an important principle, as are as are many of them. Exactly right, and and let's just let's just take one of that one for a moment. This is a great season in which to apply. Think for yourself, because this is a season, the holiday season, in which there is great joy in the world, but there's a lot of pressure on on each of us to accept the way we're supposed to think and feel. Uh, that is, we're being told by the media and by a lot of people around us that we have to have certain feelings, that we have to uh, uh, be joyous in certain ways, uh, that we shouldn't ask certain questions uh, that are not considered uh, appropriate. Uh, so it's a great season in which to ask yourself, well, what of this do I really believe? What really makes sense to me? What, what are my values that, as they relate to this kind of holiday season? Uh, it's a great time to do that, both in terms of gift-giving, what kind of gifts will really express my spirit and really honor what I want to honor in the people that I'm, that I'm gifting. Uh, it's a great time to try to uh, strenuously to think for ourselves, and by doing so, I think we can make the holidays even more rewarding. I want to ask you about two uh, two other principles that that seem to me very close to 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 that one. Think for yourself. Maybe one is a great tool towards that end, and the other almost seems like the same thing. So I'm really anxious to know what you see as the distinction. Let's start with that, which is uh, principle number four, which is not only should we think for ourselves, but we should also challenge convention. Right. <laughs> now, what 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 are you saying there specifically that goes beyond think for yourself? Well, basically, in, in, challenge, in challenge convention, I'm looking to uh, encourage people to uh, examine uh, the whole framework they've been given by their parents, by their schooling, by the profession that they were trained in or the occupation that they were trained in, uh, all of those conventional ways of thinking and feeling that were handed down to us. It is close to think for yourself, but there are different techniques that you can use in, in, uh, in achieving each of them. Uh, in the case of challenging convention, uh, I evoke the wonderful image that Socrates presented of the cave. Uh, you may recall this from uh, school or college acquaintance with 5th uh, century Athens. Socrates uh, evoked the idea of a race of people who lived in an underground cave where they never saw things in the real light of day, but just shadows on the back wall of the cave. And then one of them is liberated one day and gets a chance to go upstairs to our world and see what things look like in real sunlight and what real objects and people look like. And it's very powerful in terms of uh, helping us free ourselves from the dominance of the, those flickering shadows that we spend so much of our time with on the television screen or the movie screen and to urge us to come into contact with things as they really are and challenge the whole notion of whether we are in touch with reality. And I think post 9-11, uh, we have realized that that's true of our relation to the to the whole world, to the to the great world out there. That we knew far little, too little about how people regarded us and what the possible perils and dangers were of living in the world of the 21st century. So, challenge convention is really uh, the uh, having the courage to contest uh, that which so many people around us believe. Think for yourself. Uh, teaches people specific concrete tools to use to make their minds work to the utmost. And so I teach you seven keys to that you can run through when you're dealing with any problem or challenge in order to come up with an optimal solution. I also love, uh, among your principles, and this is also one I think closely related, uh, you say we need to ask great questions. 
First of all, explain for us what you see as the distinction between great questions and questions that are not so great. <laughs> sure, Greg. Uh, I need to know that for my line of work, you well, see. Well, I was going to say that, uh, that you are obviously a master of asking great questions, and you just exemplified it in the way you asked this question. That is, you, uh, uh, the not-so-good not questions are the questions that can just be answered yes or no or by giving a few facts. Uh, the great questions are questions that open up the other person to reveal some things about themselves and about the issue under discussion that you never would have learned in any other way. And so by, by asking uh, a person to, by just by telling a person that what they've said is really interesting and you'd love to hear more about it, and then asking a pointed question about, uh, that will bring them forth uh, can, uh, can be uh, extremely illuminating, and by the way, will get you a reputation for being a terrific conversationalist. Uh, so the kind of great questions that I teach uh, in the book are questions like, uh, for example, in your workplace, in the place that you spend your work uh, life, asking questions like, what really gets rewarded around here? And then spending a week nosing around to clarify your uh, sense of what it is that people really get rewarded for doing. And this has had a profound effect on people who've done it in terms of both advancing in their own organization or realizing that the organization they're in is not the one that's consistent with their values and finding one that is. Or in an intimate relationship, asking yourself, what is it like for, to be in this relationship with me? What is it like for the other person to be in this relationship with me? And asking that question, not of the other person, but of yourself. Hmm. I hadn't even thought about that, or I guess I'd forgotten that distinction that, uh, that great questions can be posed to oneself and not just to others. Yes, indeed. That's a wonderful point. Indeed, exactly right. Uh, some of the best questions are ones that are posed to, to oneself. Uh, and Socrates himself uh, found his vocation in life uh, he was told by the, by the oracle at Delphi, the greatest authority in his world, uh, that he was the, the wisest man uh, that existed. And he knew that was ridiculous because he always contended that he was only an ignorant man seeking to, to get wiser by, by working together with others. And so he actually disproved the oracle's uh, dictum by going around Athens trying to find a man wiser than himself and when it turned out that nobody really was as wise as they thought they were, Socrates realized that what the oracle meant was that because he was aware of his own ignorance and of how much he had to learn, there was no one wiser than that. So Socrates himself questioned things that he was told about himself and insisted on answering by thinking for himself. Hmm. That really brings to mind uh, principle number one, and I'm assuming these are not in order of importance, but I should have asked you before we plunged no, in. No, you can start anywhere. Okay. And so any one of these that, uh, that appeals to listeners, and by the way, I just want to mention that these are all available together with exercises on doing them uh, on a website in which we uh, present free much that's in the book, just as Socrates never took pay for his teaching, but presented, uh, offered it uh, at no price. Uh, on the website, www.socratesway.com, uh, uh, listeners can uh, see Socrates in action in New York uh, with New Yorkers and see what that's like and also learn how to use some of these techniques themselves. Uh what you were just talking about really brings to mind the first of the principles uh, in terms of posing good questions to ourselves. Uh, principle number one of these seven master keys is to know thyself. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is the uh, essential importance of that, or in what way do we 
tend not to know ourselves. Well, it's very well exemplified by that uh, uh, movie that's just out, uh, Tuesdays with Mari, based on the wonderful book by Mitch Albom, the very successful sports writer who right. returned in midlife to visit his old teacher, uh, Mari Schwartz, uh, who was dying. And Mari, in a series of, uh, of, of sessions on Tuesday afternoons, uh, made Mitch Albom realize that he had gotten completely out of touch with himself that he didn't really know himself. Uh, Schwartz played the Socrates to Albom's uh, seemingly successful life and uh, revealed to this, this still fairly young man that he had a long way to go before he had, was really at peace with himself and was doing what he was really born to do. And that so uh, ex exemplifies the fact that Socrates' method is applicable in our time because that's exactly what Socrates did with the young men of of Athens of his day and why he was brought up on charges of corrupting their minds because he would question them in ways that made them challenge whether what they'd been told was what they should do with their lives really made sense to them. So it's a good illustration of that movie is a wonderful uh, drama of this, this process uh, that we should all put ourselves through. I, I've been thinking about that. I mean, I, I think nowadays we are pretty well acquainted with that idea of, of, of knowing yourself, of pondering, you know, what you like, what you dislike, uh, what is important to you, and, and whatever. But I imagine 2,500 years ago, uh, this was a rather provocative idea. Indeed it was, because people were, I think, uh, 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 very much into following in their parents' footsteps. Uh, if your father was a potter, it was pretty well ordained that you would be a potter. Uh, but I think we have problems that are no less grave in that regard. That is, while we may feel free to depart from the uh, roles that our parents played, we're still completely brainwashed by the media uh, and, and the entertainment that we watch as to what a good life is like. And so I think probably it's just as difficult and just as necessary for us to ask ourselves important questions like this uh, to find out what we truly believe uh, that, uh, that it was as it was for the 5th century Athenians. We are uh, talking with Ron Gross, who is the author of Socrates' Way, Seven Master Keys to Using Your Mind to the Utmost, published by Tarcher Putnam. We've talked about the first four of this list of seven. Know thyself, ask great questions, think for yourself, challenge convention. Uh, the fifth on the list, I think, is the most surprising, uh, and the one that is maybe... Uh, make makes the least sense just on the surface. I mean, some of these others are rather self-explanatory, although it's they're worth exploring in rich detail. But number five is grow with friends. Grow with friends. What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually one that uh, Americans have perhaps done more with uh, recently than any of the others. Uh, what I mean by that is that Socrates, as we said at the start, realized that it was only with other lively-minded people who cared about the same things that he cared about that he could nurture his own soul and, and bring his own mind to, uh, to its peak. Uh, and so he is famous, of course, for going around uh, sponsoring uh, dialogues with people, uh, just talking with them about things that really matter in ways that were not solemn but uh, actually exhilarating. Uh, and we Americans have tended to let our institutions atrophy that helped us do that so that there are very few occasions when we have a chance to come together with our friends and neighbors uh, and colleagues to talk about the things that really matter we tend to be cocooned away with our own tv set and uh, uh and dial and 
uh, in our couch on our couches. Uh, what's happening now is that Americans all around the country are coming out of their homes and uh, going to what they call Socrates cafes. There are hundreds of them around the country, and on the website, uh, listeners can find ways to uh, find their own in Milwaukee or uh, launch their own, which is even more fun. And these are just opportunities for people to come together every week or every two weeks to talk about these kinds of issues that really matter to them, uh, not just the immediate politics of the day, but things that are a little deeper than that, uh, but which they can explore together in uh, very fruitful and enjoyable ways. In fact, uh, there's one that meets in the atrium of an office building in the middle of Manhattan uh, every Tuesday evening at 6.30, the Sony atrium, and Socrates himself occasionally turns up there. Uh, New Yorkers just wander in there off the street, pull together some of the metal cafe tables that are strewn around the lobby, and form a circle and start talking about uh, uh, issues like what is happiness or what makes a city great. Hmm. So if uh, listeners want to... Uh, find or start something like that in Milwaukee, they can find uh, directions for doing that on the website. One of the things I like about the, the, the way you phrase that, I mean, it's just r three relatively simple words, but the idea that friendship and our friends are a, a means of growth for us. And I don't think we tend to think of our friends in that way, although it is certainly true. Well, it is indeed, and what, what I try, what I do in, in that chapter is show you how to look at your present circle of friends to see whether it really is uh, helping you to grow and being as enjoyable as you, uh, as you would like. I also show how you can turn any conversation uh, at one of perhaps the next Christmas party you're going to go to into a much more interesting dialogue than anyone expected uh, and have everyone enjoy it a great deal because Socrates was the master of doing that. Uh, so there are, there are all kinds of simple ways that we can turn almost all our social uh, encounters uh, into much more rewarding and enjoyable occasions than they presently are. You know, our great American philosopher Thoreau said once that we, we, we descend to meet, that when we come together, we tend to fall to the lowest common denominator and talk about the weather or the parking, uh, but that there are ways that we can contrive to rise when we meet to uh, actually engage each other on a slightly higher level than we usually do. And that's what we teach in these very simple techniques in that chapter. Of course, Socrates is as well known as anything for what you call master key number six, speak the truth. <laughs> right. And do we need that these days? As, uh, as Bert Bauman, that uh, trial lawyer, said to Socrates on 42nd Street the other day, uh, we have seen our greatest economy in the world brought to the brink of ruin by widespread lies and deceptions in high places. And so it's obvious that we need to reacquire the virtue of speaking the truth, that this is not just some ideal, but a practical necessity if we're to get our economy and our, and our capital markets uh, working again uh, and, and, and earning the confidence of investors and consumers. Uh, it's absolutely essential that we reinstall the kind of truth-speaking that Socrates stood for as a prime value of our society. And what's intriguing to me is uh, that there is value in speaking truth. Uh, I mean, if, if you're the president of Enron, or if you're just dealing with your spouse, or your children, <laughs> or your teacher, or your neighbor. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's something that really uh, 
f- finds meaning in, in even the, the humblest, most ordinary corners of life. Oh, it certainly does. And when I, in that chapter, when I come to uh, share a story of someone in our time who does what Socrates did, uh, I choose a, a, a doctor in uh, Kaiser Permanente in Denver, who, uh, a surgeon, who made a crucial mistake that didn't have dire consequences in an operation. Uh, he picked up the wrong vial to administer to a patient in the aftermath of an operation. Uh, and the next day, uh, his name is Michael Leonard, in the next day he came in and, and gathered his fellow surgeons who performed the same operation and said, yesterday I made a, a major mistake and I just wanted to let you know about it because it's very easy to, to do and we really should do something to prevent it from happening again. And he told them about this mistake that he'd made where he picked up the wrong vial of the two vials that he was supposed to administer. And all five of the other surgeons said, oh, well, I, we've done that. Each of them said, I've done that. But none of them had ever told the others because even though they hadn't had dire results, they were embarrassed and they just felt, well, since nothing bad happened, we'll just let that one go. Uh, of course, once he did share this mistake, they were very easily able to remark these vials, to relabel them so that that mistake could never happen again. And that procedure is called the near-miss procedure, that is, encouraging people to report mistakes and near-misses that could have been costly or damaging uh, before they get that way, uh, is now installed in hospitals all around the country. So it's another example of how one of these ideals uh, that we tend to think might just be a a high value of an ancient time is actually one of the most practical things we can do to prevent uh, disease, infection, and death in our hospitals. I suppose it, it fosters our ability to learn about all kinds of things, too. Indeed, absolutely. It, it's what gives legitimacy to uh, whistleblowers uh, and all kinds of people who we desperately need to keep us informed about re- what's really going on that uh, the powers that be might not want us to know. Explain your seventh and final master key, strengthen your soul. Well, that was Socrates' basic call. Basically, what he said to his fellow Athenians and what this book says to us is, uh, uh, stop being so completely preoccupied with earning a living, with making the most money that you possibly can, with acquiring goods and possessions, uh, even with becoming uh, uh, renowned in your field. And look into yourself uh, uh, a bit and ask yourself whether you are really taking care of your soul, whether you are nurturing what is absolutely unique about yourself uh, so that you are getting the kind of joy and gratification out of life that can only come when you are living in, in consistently with your true values and what really is meaningful for you. So in that last chapter, I talk about things like finding the soul in your work, finding the real meaning of the work that you do every day, day in, day out, uh, so that you can uh, accentuate the parts of it that mean something to you and enjoy them more and thereby make a greater contribution and be more successful, uh, or how to see yourself going through stages of self-discovery uh, in your life. Uh, these are things that you can be doing every day uh, as part of your everyday life, not just on Sunday when you might go to religious observances or Saturday, uh, but things that we can do uh, every day uh, in, in getting ourselves keyed into our own inner spirit. That ties into what, what will turn out to be our last question, I think. The fact, I wanted to ask you about this, the fact that uh, what you have laid out here in these principles important to Socrates uh, can actually 
be woven into many different approaches to life. For instance, if someone uh, had a fervent religious faith, uh, there is nothing, in your view, I think, essentially contradictory about this list. I mean, it is possible to adhere to these uh, seven principles and at the same time be a, a devout Jew or, or Muslim or Christian or, or whatever your, your religion might be, for instance. I do believe that's true, and indeed the, the church, the early church fathers and, uh, and, and, and devout uh, uh, Christians throughout our Western, our tradition, have looked to Socrates and seen him as a, a precursor of Jesus, that is, as the noblest of the pagans, and one who in his integrity and in his dedication to the truth and in his insistence that we nurture our soul was actually following a truly virtuous uh, life even, even before uh, the coming of, of Jesus. So he was revered by, uh, by outstanding religious people in every generation as a person of tremendous virtue. The book is Socrates' Way, Seven Master Keys to Using Your Mind to the Utmost, published by Tarcher Putnam. And Ron Gross, what an extraordinary book this is, and what a thought-provoking conversation this has been. I'm so grateful for your time and glad that we had this opportunity to talk. Thank you, Greg. I enjoyed it tremendously. Have a wonderful holiday. Thank you.